Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about the science of vengeance. And I'd love to hear from you if you are somebody who is prone to enacting uh, your darkest urges. I have to say I'm not a particularly um, vengeful person, but... uh, I know some people are consumed by getting back at someone. My wife is one of them, I think. Um, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us, science at newstalk.com. Uh, you can also uh, tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science. We get to all of those comments uh, later on in the podcast. Um, before we talk about the dish uh, that's best served cold, uh, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining us in studio are Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and science communicator Catherine McGuinness. You're both very welcome. Shane, our first story has to do with strange galaxies. It does, Jonathan. Strange old galaxies that have been found with the uh, J. West telescope or the JWST, depending on your uh, inclination. And this is from their first chunk of data. And uh, Eric Nelson at CU Boulder in Colorado took a close look at some of the fuzzy images uh, within it. And it appeared to her that some of the the dots were unusually bright and unusually red. Red means old because they've been red shifted because they're very, very far away in in, in both space and time. The light has been stretched. Exactly, in the red direction. And so um, she was able to age them and she's aged these galaxies uh, to be um, basically 13.2 billion years, right? So the universe is 13.7 billion years old. So these guys were around around 500 million years after the universe started. It's pretty soon. Pretty Pretty soon. In fact, we would have thought too soon for these to be be around. So they're big galaxies. They're about the size of of our Milky Way, which has around 10,000, no, it's about 10,000 light years across, doesn't have 10,000 stars in it. That would have been a career ending statement on radio, (laughs) but uh, about the same size as the Milky Way. And it's thought that, you know, there just wouldn't have been enough time for galaxies to have formed at uh, at that size, that it wouldn't have been that long after the so-called Dark Ages. So when the uh, the Big Bang happened, there was a rapid expansion and then cooling and it, um, there hadn't been enough kind of gravitational force yet to gather bits of dust together to form early stars, let alone galaxies. And so the fact that Eric Erica Nelson has spotted these things um, is very, very confusing for her and many other scientists. And that's good for them. They've gone back to the uh, drawing board. Unlikely to be like dirt on the lens here. This this is a... But, <laughs> could you imagine? Uh, but but, but um, this is a really big deal though, right? Because we ha- we thought we had a pretty clear idea um, from, you know, from only a few million years after the Big Bang uh, of how universe formed, the clumpiness and all that sort of stuff. We had a clear idea from looking at things like the cosmic... Um, um, microwave background and and these very far away stars and this sort of um, is a real sort of spanner in the works it is and it's not the first one that the JWS telescope has has kind of has done this to so they're throwing lots of well established science out the window and having to go back to the drawing board and and it's it's really justifying why this successor to Hubble was needed because it looks with the infrared so it has a different pair of goggles on it so it's able to see these redder parts of the spectrum it's able to see back further in time 
to closer to the the beginning of of the of the uh, the universe. So it's incredible that they're able to get this. It's only this is just the first chunk of data that the uh, the instrument gave out, and they're already finding all these things. So as she says, and as I say to you virtually every week, more data is needed. <laughs> do you know what? Um, do you know? Do you know? We we're just talking about this now, right? But somewhere on this planet, someone's career has been ruined by this. They, no, they, they, oh, no, no, like someone has staked their reputation on this or said this is this is what we know and built up that this is this is what we know and told everybody this is what we know. No. And now they're going to have to go. Yeah, I was wrong about that. That's not how it works. So like Newton um, wasn't ruined by Einstein. It's just that things evolve and the theories move on. And so like they're building on that person's work. So rather than destroying the work, it's not like they've said, aha, you were wrong. Go sit in the corner. It's more like. Things have moved on, and we have more data. I think they. I think they're uh, uh, scientists are way more human than you. Give them. I think you give them way more <laughs> credit. Be than wrong. Yeah. It. I spent my whole life working on that piece of paper. Now I'm going to take it back. Right, um, uh, Catherine. Our second story uh, has to do with uh, an amazing sort of confirmation of uh, our understanding of how t- we might cure HIV. Yes. So what happened is this started in about. Uh, 2006, 2007, a patient who was HIV positive presented with leukaemia and the decision was made to treat this person using bone marrow uh, transplant from a donor, which is a very common treatment for for leukaemia. When they were choosing the donor, um, they chose a person who had a CCR5 Delta 32 homozygous um, mutation. Now, what makes this so important is that it's a very rare uh, genetic mutation um, where a protein on the cell surface of white blood cells um, is mutated and it doesn't allow viruses into the cell. And what they found with treating, um, using this donor with this mutation, that this HIV patient stayed HIV negative for the rest of their life. Wow. And so what they have done is since then, other patients have presented who are HIV positive, develop leukaemia. They've used the same um method of um, treatment and in each single case now at the moment this is the third case where the patients present as HIV not negative but that no active HIV virus can be found in their system there is the presence of HIV but they're not sure yet whether that is just a reservoir of dead genetic HIV material cells, yeah. yeah is it a store in, in the body but it's they have found DNA and RNA and they're, it's not replicating so this is um, obviously not a procedure you are going to treat everyone who's um, uh, suffering from HIV with because it's just, I mean, it's 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 not feasible. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yet the 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 fact that these patients have presented with leukemia allows um, these researchers to test this hypothesis, uh, hypothesis and confirm it. Do, do do we have any idea whether or not uh, we might be able to hijack this mutation? Without having to do a bone marrow transplant, are there are there other ways of of uh, of treating this in a similar way without having to do something as um, invasive, invasive and, yeah. uh, and and dangerous uh, suppose, and, and expensive? I yeah, suppose, yeah, it's expensive. It's, it's it's intensive. It's very very dangerous as well. That with the side effects of bone marrow transplant is as very it's a very serious procedure. Um, at the moment, no, they're not looking at that. Now, interestingly, there was another study done where they were looking at something similar and not HIV but SARS. And the same kind of thing would would prevent SARS because again, it, this this protein it is its way into the cell, so it's it's not just HIV; it's blocking it's blocking other viruses. Now that said, other studies have shown that the viruses can still get into the cells in other ways. So there's a lot more work needed really to be done before this can be said to be 
either this is the start of a new type of treatment or we develop a new treatment from using this as a basis. Yeah, because uh, using one or two patients obviously is very difficult to know yeah. exactly what's going on. The Absolutely. human body is such a complicated system, but getting one, two, three or four of these cases, suddenly you and start to think, okay, look, something's going on here. It deserves proper investigation. Absolutely. And it's also how long the person survives as well. Now, the the first patient, um, when he was treated uh, in 2007, he lived till 2020. And he did have um, a relapse of leukemia. He had to have a second treatment. So, but the, the more newer ones, I mean, the last one was just last year. These patients haven't lived, you know, cancer-free, HIV-free free for long or enough, negative, yeah, yeah. Uh, long, for long enough for us to really be sure. But, yeah. the, but the, it, it's pointing in a good direction anyway. Uh, yeah, really interesting, um, Catherine. Thanks very much. Our, our third story, um, Shane, has to do with uh, another anomaly in space. Yeah, a little planet that has a ring on it. And uh, this is a planet. Oh, oh, planet- oh. <laughs> exactly, I was waiting for him to see. Oh, they put a ring on They did. A little planetoid. It's beyond uh, Neptune, which is the first Did you make planet. that word up? No, it's like a planetet. I don't know. A small planet-like thing that we wouldn't classify as a planet. A planetine. A planetine. Like Pluto. Yeah, a planetine. Is Pluto a planetoid? No, it's, yes, it is a planetoid. Yeah, it's not a planet anymore. You're going to get calls about that. So this is um, <laughs> this is a new one. and It's not new, but it's uh, there's new science around it. It's called Quaor, right? Um, and uh, so they published uh, in Nature this week. Um, they found that it has a ring on it. And they were able to uh, look at it from um, a big telescope in Gran Canaria and they found that not just that it has a ring, but the ring shouldn't really be there, right? So again, theories out the window. And um, what's weird about it is, is that the ring is very far away from the planet. It, too far away, they would have thought. So it's beyond the so-called Roche limit. I have to say, when I read this, I was so excited. I thought it was the Roche limit. And I was like, oh, it must be an Irish person that came up with it and Googled <laughs> it and some French person. So it's Roche. So, <laughs> so it says that if you're going to have a ring around a planet, that the ring is going to be within three radius of the planet, right? So it's going to be pretty close to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, because um, it's good gravity. And if it's not that close, it'll just fly off. Yeah, or turn into a moon, right? So or, or right. moonless, right? So if you're close to the planet, you'll have these rings. If you're further away from the planet, you'll probably, they'll collide into one another because they're always bouncing into one another and they'll form a moon or a moonlet. But why, why would why would a, a ring not turn into a moon? Uh, because it's it's so close that um, it's something called um, gravitational uh, tidal forces. That's what it's called. It's the same force that causes the tide on, on the Earth. God, you're really stretching my, my mechanics You're doing knowledge. very well. <laughs> so tidal forces are what, what, what cause this, right? So they're knocking into one another and they're, it, the, the collisions are what are called elastic. So when they hit into one another, they just bounce apart, right? Okay. And so they stay in this sort of like um, suspended um, ring-like system and they won't, they're just, they're just too close to the planet forces of gravity on them are too strong for them to form a moonlet. And you can imagine there's a mathematical equation for how big, how far away these rings can be and still be rings. And yes. this is what the Roche yeah, thing is. Yeah, and so the, the Roche thing says it shouldn't be more than three times the radius of the planet. This one is seven times the radius of the planet. So it's it's pretty incredible. Now, how they discovered it, I think it's pretty cool. So I mentioned Gran Canaria. What they do is they, they use a telescope and it's called an oculation. It's like a transit. So they look at stars, right? And they see when things pass in front of those stars, the intensity of the light dims. And it dims by between 5 to 10%. And that little kind of minute long blip 
is enough for them to get all of that information out of it. So they can not just see planets, but they are planetoids, but they can see rings around them. This, these things would be otherwise so faint that nothing we have would be able to see them. The Hubble wouldn't be able to see this, for example. There is an image of uh, a recreation of what this would look like on our Twitter page, uh, and you should you look do at it, it because it does you look weird. Tongue sticking out the side. Yeah. Uh, n- no, it, it, uh, but, but you, when you look at it, it does look wrong. It does look wrong. So, any idea as to how it happened? No, no, nothing. Really. Okay. Yeah, we'll be back. More right. signs, okay. Jonathan. Uh, our final story, uh, Catherine, has to do with AI. A lot of talk about AI, and, and mm. I'll be talking about it a lot next week because um, my colleague uh, Jess Kelly was writing this on the Business Post, saying, you know, there's a lot of hype around this thing. There is. I am certainly knee deep in the hype and I'm going to explain why next week um, mm-hmm. because I th- I think we're at a very strange point in time but mm-hmm. um, this is about uh, our subconscious and how it understands or or um, interacts with AI. Yes so this study it was done over in China and what they were basically doing with their participants were that they were giving their participants conversations that they had to read and it's a bit like they took the Turing test and just ran with it, basically. So these uh, conversations were either between a human and a human or a human and a chatbot. Now, were they were they vocal? Or could you hear them or just read? read? You're reading okay. these. Yeah, you're reading them. So uh, they did two different types of tests. They did a personality test and then they did an identity test. So in the personality, what the participants were asked to do was to read the um, the conversation and the, the interlocutor, so the the person in getting involved in the in the conversation to decide whether it was a chatbot or a human you had to assess what are called the big five inventory so in terms of were they open were they agreeable were they neurotic just general uh, parameters that are used and they found that really that the participants couldn't identify correctly which was a chatbot which was um, a human or not significantly anyway. So then with the uh, identity test, they ask a different question. They're more really looking into, uh, again, reading the conversation and saying out loud uh, after you've read the conversation, is the interlocutor, is it a chatbot? Possibly a chatbot? Definitely a chatbot. Or is it possibly a human or definitely a human? Now, what they did differently was that they looked at the mentalizing networks. So they actually had brain scans going on as the person was reading and then saying out loud what they thought um, the uh, the interlocutor was. And while the person might say out loud, oh, well, this is definitely a chatbot, and they might be wrong, so their conscious response was incorrect. What the mentalizing networks uh, results showed that actually subconsciously they did realise it was a chatbot mm. but what they weren't they can't be too sure why but they weren't really picking up they saw the cues there but they weren't picking up on them so so, so they were so they were um, reading this and, and they were and they, they were asked and they said yeah no that's not a chatbot but their brains subconsciously were going that's a chatbot there's something wrong there that's not quite right yeah, there's, they're yeah, sort of there's, picking there's something. something up just from words yeah, in the yeah. rhythm or the way the words are put together. That's, good. Uh, that's not human, which is weird because, of course, AI is trained on humans. Yeah, absolutely. But you see, you got to remember as well, you know, when we are reading something, this is a conversation. It's not text. It's not prose. It's a conversation. Yeah. So when you normally have 
verbal conversations. Right, 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 right. So when you are reading a conversation, and you know, this, you know, I'm sure we've all got an email or a text, and you're like, what? What are, they, what are they trying to say to me? You know, when, so what this shows is that you know my reading, students. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, this, you know, you, you, we've all been there where you're going, um, I don't know what this person, what the tone is, or you're trying to imagine the tone or what the way. And it seems like when these guys were reading their conversations, they were trying to. They reckon they were trying to kind of visualize the facial expressions, the the you know the the nonverbal cues, as the conversation continued, and these nonverbal cues were were helping them subconsciously pick up that what which was chatbot, which were chatbots, and then which were which were humans. And interestingly as well, it was done in two languages. It was done in English and it was done in Chinese as well. And uh, there were slightly different results in the personality test, but not with the identity test. So again. To take Shane's uh, catchphrase, more data needed because the 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 sample groups were quite small. In the English language, it was only twenty participants. Right. Okay. You know, in the Chinese, a bit more. Okay. So. Uh, very interesting, though, the idea that that we we can sort of know something's not quite right subconsciously, but we we haven't put a, a haven't been able to identify that in our, our conscious brains. Mm. Um, Catherine McGuinness, uh, a science communicator, and Dr. Shane Berger from UCD. Thanks very much for joining us. <laughs> This is Future Brief on News Talk. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. Or you can text us for 30 cent 53106. Now, from Hamlet to The Revenant, from Kill Bill to John Wick, there's few things in life that thrills us more than a good revenge story. But our indulgence in this fantasy of vengeance can be intoxicating and also yet very dangerous if we were to enact them out in real life. What is revenge and why has it evolved in us as a trait at all? Well, Katie Magaki is a PhD student at Queen's University Belfast and she's conducting research on revenge. Welcome to the programme, Katie. I have to say, I'm really fascinated by how you might study something like revenge because it it would be highly unethical to, to do harm to someone and then see what happens, right? How do you study something like revenge in the real world? Yeah, so thanks so much for having me on the show, by the way. Um, And yeah, that's a really great question. And that has been a massive challenge for me throughout my PhD project. And that is a huge challenge for revenge researchers. Because as you said, obviously the ideal scientific way to measure revenge would be to take people and just randomly assign 50% of those people to experience a serious crime or something and then track them and see if they take revenge. But we cannot do that. That would be completely unethical. And we have to think about doing research in ways that will not cause harm. So when it comes to revenge, um, we tend to study it either through questionnaires, which ask about people's attitudes to revenge, um, and they ask about people's revenge fantasies that they've experienced. Um, and we can also measure it in the lab um, through, there's a few cool ways that researchers have come up with to measure revenge. So some studies have um, brought people into the lab and um, had someone in the lab wrong them in some way. Um, and that's usually something minor and trivial, like in an online game, for example. And then you will let people take revenge by um Some studies have used hot sauce, so participants will be told um, this person that wronged you, they hate spicy food, um, and they will let that person dispense um, spicier and spicier hot sauce. So the spicier the hot sauce, the worse the revenge. Um, We've also got studies that have used horns, so blasting a loud horn. So you can push a button on a screen, and that person who's wronged you in the lab, so in a game, 
um, you can push a button and it'll blast an ever louder horn in their ear and the louder the horn, the worse the revenge behavior. So <laughs> it's creative workarounds like that that researchers but, use. As an analogue for real revenge, are they not a bit um, weak? I, I mean, you know... Yeah. Like once you're in an environment where you're giving someone a lot of hot sauce, I mean, yeah. or you're blaring a horn, it's not you don't really want to hurt hurt that person. You're doing it for fun, and it's in a sort of a a, a fun environment. It's not really enacting revenge on someone, is it? I mean, uh, you, you know, uh, one of the things I learned from um, researching this was that ten percent of murders in New York are said to be motivated by revenge. I mean. That's the sort of revenge that, that, that we really want to study. Is it really difficult to, to, to map that sort of act of brutality onto something mm. like a, a game in a, a psychological lab? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely not perfect. And it's obviously not a perfect representation of real life. Um, but I guess those studies in the lab, they're still worthwhile because they give us some insight into the psychological processes behind revenge. And those might be similar to some of the psychological processes that we see in those more serious cases. Um, and those studies can help us understand what some of the characteristics are that people might have that could make them more likely to take revenge in real life. Um, and so there definitely is a link there. Um, and those characteristics could include things like age, gender, someone's ability to control their emotions, their proneness to anger, their willingness to forgive someone. And all those factors are things that you know, have been linked um, to punishing people in the lab in those more trivial scenarios, as well as those more serious scenarios. But you're right, it's it's not perfect. And it is very hard to study revenge. Yeah. You talked about age and gender. And I'm wondering, are there any demographics that are much more likely to talk about revenge fantasies or want to enact revenge? I mean, my eight-year-old is quite a vengeful child. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm hoping when yeah. he, he'll grow out of that, but I think most most young kids are. Either are either demographics that are more vengeful than others. Yeah, no, it's interesting you say that about your eight year old, actually, because um, we've just conducted um, a study um, as part of the Northern Ireland Science Festival, um, and we actually studied the impact that age has on someone's likelihood um, to want vengeance. And we found that younger people were much more likely to approve of taking revenge than older people. Now, we didn't study children, um, we only studied adults, but um, of the people we studied, 18 to 30 year olds were the most likely to want revenge. And that seemed to reduce as people got older. What? So revenge might actually reduce with age. And we don't know why that is. Um, and it's been found in a couple of other studies in the past. Um, and researchers have kind of speculated that maybe it's because, you know, with age comes wisdom. And maybe as we get older, we start to realize some of the risks that can be associated with taking revenge and some of the potential negative consequences. And so people are less likely to then approve of it. But it's really interesting. Well, at this, I'm really surprised by that because, I mean, offhand, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, general support for the death penalty in the United States. And I think that skews quite uh, older uh, in terms of support. Um, but I do think, you know, once you're older, you realize actually it's quite easy to make stupid mistakes in your life. Well, yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Uh, but, but in terms of, um, of a strategy, are there ways of, of studying the, the benefits to it? Because, of course, 
enacting your revenge on someone, um, uh, you know, as an evolutional uh, evolutionary trait, that that can be quite a dangerous thing to do. Um, yeah. And so, I suppose if I, what's jumping in my mind is actually game theory. You know, there's attack and defense games where, you know, if someone attacks you, you have to decide: do you attack with proportion or disproportionately, or you do you attack attack back? Um, a little bit or do you just do nothing and how might that play out in the system uh, that kind of reminds me of um of of this idea of revenge that <laughs> that it may have a root in um just trying to stop further regressions do we know anything about that so that's a really interesting point um i'm not an expert on game theory but i am familiar with it um and i see what you're saying and that really ties into some arguments by evolutionary psychologists so such as mcculloch and they argue that um, revenge actually evolved in order to promote human cooperation, which is really surprising. Hmm. Um, and it doesn't seem intuitive, but actually in early human societies, so in the Pleistocene era when modern humans evolved, obviously we didn't have laws and we didn't have a justice system. And things like theft and violence were really serious problems. And if you avenged someone a couple of times and developed a reputation, as someone who would take revenge, then people were much more likely to leave you alone and you'd be less likely to experience those problems that I just mentioned. Hmm. Um, and so in that sense, like revenge could be something that is really important to human cooperation. And it was something that um, some psychologists see as necessary for human society to evolve. So in that sense, revenge, you know, it does have some positives. And um, there's an interesting kind of survival of the fittest argument there. So people who took revenge, um, because they were less likely to have other people steal their food, people were less likely to be violent towards them because they feared that that person would then retaliate. So those people were more likely to survive, more likely to have children and pass on their genes. And those children were then also more likely to take revenge. And so maybe revenge evolved um, to be kind of hardwired into us biologically. And that's why we still have that desire for revenge today. So it's a really interesting kind of discussion and argument there. Do, do we have any idea of how how the genetic basis of revenge, is that, is that something that I know we, we can look at something like the genetic basis of uh, lots of different behavior traits um, in terms of uh, being vengeful? Is that something that we have any research that's useful on? Yes, there is some research on that. So there could be a revenge gene. So that's something, um, it's called the monoamine oxidase A gene. Um, and that's been implicated um, in studies as something that, in those lab studies I mentioned earlier that use hot sauce. So people who have that gene have been more likely to dispense really spicy hot sauce hmm. on people. But that gene has been linked to risky behaviors in general since then. So it's unlikely to be specific to revenge. Is that, is that, the, is, is that the MAOA gene? The, the yes, one that's associated with yes. aggression? Okay, yes. Yes, yeah. oh. so, yes. So that's associated with risky behaviors in general, but it is implicated in revenge. And then we've also got twin studies. So scientists can use twin studies in order to try and figure out whether a trait is genetic or whether it's something that people have learned from people in the environment around them as they grow up, because you can compare um, yeah. identical twins to non-identical twins. And obviously identical twins share the same genetic makeup and non-identical twins don't. And they both share the same kind of environment growing up. And so that's found that 
that genetics are responsible for 40% of the difference in vengeance in boys and 30% in girls. And that's massive. And that suggests that there might be some biological basis there. Really interesting. Um, so what is uh, executive control when we think about our feelings and how we might manage them to stop ourselves lashing out if someone slights or harms us? What is executive control and why is it important to understand when we look at something like vengeance? Yeah, so executive control could play a role in vengeance. So it's controlled by our brain's central executive network and it's a brain function that differs between people. Um, and it's really about our ability to focus on goal-directed action and not get distracted. So like, for example, if you went upstairs to close the curtains, but got distracted by, I don't know, a phone notification on the way, and then you forgot to close the curtains, that would be an example of poor executive control. And when it comes to revenge, sometimes it's not a good idea, right? It could have some really negative consequences for us. It could be risky. So when we take revenge, depending on what it is, you could risk going to prison, you could risk violent counter-revenge. So a lot of the time, the sensible option, if we thought about it, might be not to take revenge and maybe to forgive the person instead to move on from it. Um, and if you have poor executive control, it might be harder for you to keep that goal in mind of not taking revenge. Um, and it's executive control has been linked to impulsiveness. Um, so if you're more impulsive, um, there's been some lab studies that have linked that to revenge. Um, and it's kind of linked to emotions. So revenge, a lot of the time, seems to be driven by anger. And if you are impulsive and have that poor executive control, then you're less likely to be thinking about that goal of forgiving or moving on and more likely to enact revenge. Do you hear about this um, study by, uh, I think it was Chester and DeWall, about the voodoo dolls? Yes. Can you tell me about that? Yes. So... Um, they brought people into a lab and had them stick pins in voodoo dolls. And that was how they measured revenge, right? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, it's, it is a tricky one. But I suppose if, if you're playing a game against... There's, there's a game that stuck in my head when I heard about it um, called Cyberball. It's this psychological tool um, by Williams, right? And what he did is he got... Um, uh, he gets his, he gets his, gets people to sit in front of a, a computer and uh, they pass the ball to someone else in another room. So it's a computer screen and you can pass the ball back and forth. And there's three players. And what happens is um, you pass the ball back and forth, back and forth. And then all of a sudden, the other two players don't pass to you anymore. And then they study what happens when you just get left out of the game. And that was a really simple idea. Um, and it, it, it works quite well in terms of studying what people feel because they feel they, they get panicked, they feel embarrassed. And, and they go through all this range, range of emotions that they talk about later, but they also study it um, in terms of, of, of uh, sensors and, and um, you know, measuring their, their sweat and so on. And I think this would be a good tool for, like, for, for studying something like revenge, would it? Because you could, you could first see someone leaving you out and then you could maybe reveal who that person is and then see how your behavior uh, changed in future games, whether or not you were willing to continue passing to that person if you had the choice not to. It's a really, it's a really interesting area to try and think about how you might get people to really feel like enacting vengeance on somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. And I have actually read a couple of studies where they do um, use a similar, I haven't, I'm not sure if it's fiberball, but definitely games where people don't have a ball passed to them. And so they're made to feel rejected and left out. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating topic, that one actually, because um, there's been some findings on narcissists 
specifically. So people who are high in the personality trait of narcissism, and they've been found to be more likely to take revenge mm. when they're rejected in a scenario like that. Yeah. Um, and it's because that rejection is kind of associated with shame. You feel socially left out. And for people high in narcissism, that's been linked to being more likely to take revenge. Yeah, which is essentially the plot of the that Joker movie, isn't it? Um, tell us uh, about your research, because, of, of course, there is a serious side to this that, uh, as I said, you know, um, uh, many murders and violent crimes are motivated by revenge served cold or served uh, hot, as uh, as they say. W- what is your work about and, and how do you think we might better understand the revenge to be able to use it to reduce the amount of crime and violence that's caused by vengeance? Yeah. So yeah, that's a really interesting question. And my research is really focused on crime victims' experiences of revenge specifically. And it looks at the particular characteristics or traits that are associated with someone's likelihood of wanting to take revenge. And that could have some really important practical applications. So as you mentioned, the violence aspect. So if we can figure out who is most likely to take revenge and in what circumstances, then we can reduce violence. And, you know, revenge contributes to a lot of violence and crime in our society. Um, It results in massive losses of life. I mean, you referred to that murder statistic. Um, Similarly, across the US, around 20% of bombings are thought to be motivated by revenge and a shocking 60% of school shootings. So revenge really results in massive losses of life. And that's why it's so important to study it. Because if we understand who's most likely to take revenge and in what circumstances, then we can intervene to stop it from happening. And my research really focuses on gathering that evidence um, on who is most likely to take revenge um, so that in the future, um, hopefully clinicians and victim support organizations will be able to use that research um, and perhaps governments will be able to use that research in order to develop interventions to prevent violence. Just one quick question before I let you go. Does anyone feel better after enacting vengeance? Mm. I, I mean, we often see videos of uh, you know, people afterwards apologizing for what they did and so on. But is that is that in real life, is that very common? Or are some people delighted that they, they got back at that person? So studies in the lab indicate that we feel good right before we take revenge, to that point where we're anticipating taking revenge, and perhaps in the immediate aftermath. In the lab, scientists have used fMRI scanners and scanned people's brains at that moment right before they take revenge um, in a game. And they found that reward centers in the brain light up. So that moment where you're taking revenge can be pleasurable and exciting. And you might feel happy. You might feel relief. However, in the long term, studies indicate that it's not such a rosy picture. Like fantasizing about revenge in the long term is associated with PTSD, um, depression and anxiety. And people who've taken revenge, you think maybe in the long term they feel better. Um, But one study found that actually they felt worse and they were spending more time thinking about the actual wrongdoing and obsessed with the wrongdoer. It seems like in the short term, you might feel better about taking revenge, but in the long term, no. Well, Katie Magaki from Queen's University, Belfast, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Right, I'd love to hear from you, um, I'd love to hear your stories because I'm very interested in hearing what happens after someone enacts revenge. Do you feel great about getting back at somebody 
I'd love to hear your stories. Please do email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can tweet us at Newstalk Science. We'll get to those next week. Um, last week, we were talking about the male pill, if you remember, and new science uh, is basically ushering in an era where men can take control of their fertility. Um, certainly, if I was in my 20s, this is something I would have absolutely gone for. There's lots of um, there's lots of commentary whenever we talk about this, about about, you know, uh, the burden always being on women, and and yes, it, it is uh, a lot of the time. But I think a lot of men would like to have very good control over whether or not they have children. Um, and your comments were very interesting. Um, one person says, "Amazing that these unacceptable side effects in male contraception are what women have been expected to tolerate in female contraceptives for decades now." Look, absolutely. I mean, when we look at female fertility, uh, it, it is very very difficult to understand why we haven't accelerated the science to create a a male version that is not um the pill hasn't been a huge urgency uh, around this because there is a solution and um it's uh on the side of women but i do think probably in looking at fertility it was probably the easier target um initially um whether or not that explains why there's a huge delay in bringing men up to speed, I don't know. Um, our second comment says, I can't even remember to put the bins out. How am I supposed to remember to take this pill? I think, <laughs> referring back to our previous comment, I think women have managed it fine. I think if you're about to go out on a night out and you think you might hook up with somebody, I think the idea of taking a pill in the same way as you might stick a condom in your pocket, that would be definitely an option that I would have gone for, um, I think you you might remember in the same way you, you might remember to put a condom in your pocket. Um, how reliable exactly is this as someone? It's not reliable at all yet because it's not available in humans, but uh, it seems very promising in animals. So um, it, it does seem around the corner, but then lots of things are around the corner, aren't they? And then another person says, could this be used for storing hydrogen? I presume we're not talking about the male pill anymore. Um, no, they were talking about the elastic material that um, Dr. Susan Kelleher talked about last week, um, which is uh, can be used to sort of trap gases and vapour. I'm not really sure um, if it's if it's an application for that. It's not. Re- it wasn't really designed for that. I think it was designed for packaging and, and sort of hyper... Um, uh, technical scientific applications, but um, I don't think it's anything to do with storing hydrogen. Maybe you were texting in about another piece that I I haven't figured out, but it looked like looked like that's what you were talking about. So the answer is no. If it wasn't that, then the answer is I don't know. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Uh, thanks to Marisa Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, and Hugo De Silva, who was on sound. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious.